very sweet and very appropriate words for us to sing. Saving, helping, keeping, loving, he indeed is with us to the end. Praise the Lord. I invite you to take your Bible to open to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is where we find ourselves this Lord's Day. And as you heard already, yes, our pastor is away today. He is presently in Utah with the great privilege and opportunity to participate in the ordination of Jason Harris. You remember Jason Harris, his sweet family, how they came here so many years ago, part of our first crop of students here at our campus for the Expositor Seminary, how he graduated, and then this last March we sent him out as a church family to Utah to minister, to serve there. Well, today he has the great privilege where he will be ordained officially for gospel ministry, and our pastor gets to participate in that. Good reminder for us to pray for Jason, pray for his family and the ministry that they have, as well as to be reminded of the uh, role that you played as a church family in his preparation and how you continue to have that role in the preparation of the current students that we have. But for our purposes, we're here, Psalm 32 before us, we bring to you a message entitled, Blessed Forgiveness. Blessed Forgiveness. Let's read the psalm in its entirety to place it in our minds. We'll go to this God and ask for his help, and then we'll consider what this psalm teaches us about blessed forgiveness today. So Psalm 32, a psalm of David, a masculine. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you. In my iniquity, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check, otherwise they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. 
Father in heaven, we bow ourselves before you and we bow ourselves before the majesty and the authority of the word that you have spoken. We come to you asking that you would be the one to guide and teach us today. We recognize who we are. We've sung about it already. We indeed are sinners in great need of forgiveness. We come then and place ourselves before this psalm, asking that you, O Lord, you would be the one to show us and lead us in this path to forgiveness. Help us, teach us, guide us. Receive honor and glory, we pray. We ask this for our Savior's sake. Amen. Blessed Forgiveness, Psalm 32. It's been observed by others that the early church father Augustine, a figure who in his own right was towering in his influence, the influence of which it's like a shadow long exceeding his own earthly life, a figure who shaped and influenced much of Christianity in all the years from his time in the 300s and 400s until now. Not just Christianity, but you could argue the Western world as a whole. That this towering figure, Augustine, that when he would open up about his own private life, he would share that his favorite psalm in all of the Psalter happened to be Psalm 32, a favorite of his, so much so that as Augustine came to the end of his life, he would ask those around him to write and to record and inscribe Psalm 32, that it might be placed and situated near his bed, so that for Augustine, whether he would lie down and go to sleep, or whether he would arise and wake up, the very first thing that he would see or the very last thing that he would see would be the truth of this psalm, Psalm 32. Psalm 32, we can imagine, was particularly precious to Augustine when we begin to understand who he was in his life before he was saved. If you're not familiar with the life of Augustine before he was saved, uh, here was a man given over to the world and all that it offered. Here was a man who lived and partied in Vanity Fair, if you will. A man who loved the world, a man given over to sin, a man ruled by his sensuality, ruled by his sin, uh, living it up, having the full experience of sin and all that it offered. Praise God, he found forgiveness with God. Augustine miraculously was saved by God's grace. And from that point on, his life was forever changed. But you can imagine him, like us, remembering his past, remembering his prior failures, and the emotions that might flood in, remembering those events. How then especially sweet was this psalm to him, as it reminded him of forgiveness found in God. In his experience, he was a great sinner who found great forgiveness with God. 
We can learn much from his experience. In fact, we could speak more broadly, experience is significant. We admit and we'll say up front, experience is a very poor master. But indeed, it can be a helpful servant. How often when we are interested in a subject and someone steps forward who has interest and has experience in that area, our ears begin to perk up. We listen a little bit more closely. But here is someone who has a proven track record, experienced knowledge in this area. As Spurgeon said, speaking of experience and the role that it can play, it being a helpful servant, he said, the experience of one believer affords rich instruction to others. Can we not affirm that? Looking and observing and seeing the experience of another believer and hearing from them of the path, the life that they've lived, the path that they've walked, the wisdom that can be gleaned, how their words, again, carry extra weight. I imagine this was true for those around Augustine as they would listen to his experience of his life and the forgiveness that he found. True for Augustine, true also, though, for the author of the psalm in front of us. David, the great man of God, the man after God's own heart, and yet you remember this man who himself committed great sin and yet found forgiveness with God. There's much then that we can learn from David's experience, especially in this psalm as he will walk us through what happened in his life, what it was that he committed, and then the forgiveness that he found with God, what we've entitled Blessed Forgiveness. Again, going further, Spurgeon will say, David now gives his own experience in this psalm. No instructor is so efficient as one who testifies to what he has personally known and felt. That's what we have here. That which David personally knew and felt, attracting Augustine's interest, and I would imagine attracting our interest as well. Because like David and like Augustine, aren't you and I sinners? Haven't there been many times and in many ways Events where we have sinned and sinned greatly against God and thus find ourselves in great need of forgiveness. We're drawn in then to this psalm that we might too have and hold this blessed forgiveness. Again, you might be familiar with Psalm 32. It's a favorite of many. You come to this psalm, and if you're orienting yourself to it as we parachute in this morning, it happens to be one of seven what people label penitential psalms in all of the Psalter. Penitential simply meaning a psalm of confession. That of all the Psalter, seven psalms especially stand out focusing on sin that was committed, confession that was made, forgiveness that was found. And perhaps the two most well-known, both authored by David, here, Psalm 32, and you know also Psalm 51. It's a penitential psalm, a psalm of confession, but you'll look and see just before verse 1, the heading, 
which by the way is actually inspired in the original text, where your eyes see a psalm of David, a masculine, peculiar word, one that you and I don't use often in our vocabulary, but a word that David uses where we begin to see uh, this here is a skilled song. It's a psalm of confession, but the very first time this term appears in all of the Psalter, cluing us in, David, in his confession to God, he's wanting to impart instruction to us. He's wanting us to understand and learn some lessons from his own experience, his own failing, his own sin, his confession, and the blessed forgiveness that he found. And can't we not say with David, oh, the one who is forgiven by God, how blessed indeed they are. This morning then, with David as our wise instructor, us sitting back, letting him speak, opening up about his own life, his own experience, to then pass on to us what we must know about forgiveness. If you're taking notes this morning, we can divide this psalm quite neatly into two equal parts, almost equal parts. Verses 1 through 5, and then verses 6 through 11. We'll walk through them in due order as David takes us by the hand and relays to us his own experience from his life of the sin that he committed and the forgiveness that he found. We'll see this morning in verses 1 through 5, we'll label it this, personal testimony. Personal testimony. In these verses, it's where David will begin, in fact, at the very beginning, even giving us the conclusion to the whole matter, but then walking through, detailing for us what it was that happened in his life. Now, we read the psalm, and you heard it, and you've probably looked at it before, and you'll notice uh, he doesn't give us any exact date or figures. He doesn't tell us specifically what he did. Thus, in a way, it being communicated generally, how we then can apply it generally to all in a broad way. All who've sinned, big or small, there's lessons to be learned here. Although, I do think, as others do, that we know what it is that he's talking about in this psalm. In other words, we know what it is in his life that David is reflecting back on. You remember what happened in David's life? Many triumphs, many victories, yet one very glaring failure that we read of in 2 Samuel, that David in the time when he should have been out at war, he finds himself alone, lazy in the palace, getting up at the end of the day, going out to look how he looks, how he sees, how he lingers, how he longs, how he then lusts. And the great man of God, the king of Israel, committing his great sin with Bathsheba. And likely this is what is on David's mind. This is what he's reflecting back on, his experience of his failure, now to then pass on to us as he reflects, as we said, his personal testimony. 
And again, to walk through the personal testimony, uh, really anytime you have testimony, you need two threads to be woven together. Uh, What it is that I did and what it is that God did. And that's what David has here. He weaves them both together so well, but then we're instructed as we focus first in David's personal testimony, what it was that David did. And again, he's thinking back upon his past. We could very easily bring it up into the present. We could even state it more broadly and generally, not just what David does, but in the present and apply to you and I what it is that you and I do. What it is that the sinner does. We're like David. We sin like David. And David is going to explain, here it is, what it is that I did. How I failed. So then what what did David do? Well, he begins to tell us in his personal testimony in verse 1 and 2. He tells us, admittedly, indirectly, by using three very specific words. In verse 1, there are two words used. In verse 2, there's one word used. It's as if he's going to put up on the screen uh, not some fuzzy picture that it's difficult to make out what happened in his life. But no, quite clearly, 4K resolution, David says, this is exactly what I did. First, he says, he committed transgression. You see the word there in verse 1, how blessed is he whose transgression, that's what he did, transgression. What's the nuance to this term? He's telling us what he did. He says that he transgressed. He's saying, I rebelled. That's what I did. To transgress, he says, I rebelled. I rebelled openly. I rebelled boldly. I was disloyal. I knew it was wrong, and yet I still moved forward. Beginning with this attitude that would be defiant, fueling into action, as one commentator put it, here this is the refusing subjection to rightful authority. Again, this is David speaking. He is king, the highest human authority. But he's saying, oh, there is another authority that I rebelled against. I rebelled against the one true God. I rebelled against Yahweh, my very own covenant God. The one who has shed abroad his loyal covenant love upon me. That I I knew what I was going to do was wrong, wrong against him. I knew that he is the rightful Lord of my life, and yet I moved forward defiantly, rebelliously in my sin. You could put it this way. I committed treason against this king. That's what I did. That's what it is to transgress. Not only did I commit transgression, he tells us also in verse 1, I committed sin. Sin meaning, oh, he says, friends, there is a standard. 
There is a perfect, right, good, holy standard emanating from the good, right, holy, just God. He says, I saw that standard. I saw God's very law. A law that, yes, was given very uniquely to the nation of Israel with all of its unique prescriptions. But the law that Paul will also say in Romans 2 is written naturally, even in the heart of an unbelieving Gentile. This innate knowledge of what's right and wrong. David says, I knew it, and yet I broke it. I've totally missed it. He says, if this were a test, and the test were the standard, David says, I failed that test. I flunked it. I intentionally tanked. Failure on my part. That's what I did. He says that there was transgression. He says that there was sin. Third, he tells us, there was also iniquity. Verse 2. What iniquity? Oh, he says, I did wrong, and I'm guilty, and I know it. And what I've done, it was crooked, it was twisted, it was perverted, it was corrupted, coming from me, revealing even what's true deep down inside. That God made man upright, but man has turned to his own inventions. And David says, I, from this corrupted, twisted heart, did that which was corrupted, twisted, and perverted. And David wants us to see sin clearly in 4K resolution. Uh, let's not be confused this morning. When sin is committed, David tells us, oh, it's like a many-headed hydra. What do we see here? What is it that David did? He says quite simply, there is the treason of sin, the failure of sin, the perversion of sin. He'll even add the duplicity of sin. Duplicity of sin? Well, at the end of verse 2, he says, the one who's blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. But David says, oh, but with me, there was deceit. There was duplicity. He says, oh, with me and with what I did, there is guilt and there is guile. Remember his account? Remember what happened? For him to look long linger and lust and then take the woman who was not his and then his plan concocted to cover it up to send out the husband to the battlefield guaranteeing his death and then and then you read in second samuel you piece it together from other accounts that he would go on for over a year Remaining silent about what he's done. Oh, there is duplicity here. Great guilt and great guile as he schemed and plotted and acted it out and then covered it up to hide what he did. Again, we could hear this relayed from David and think, oh, but, but that's what I'm doing. I have sinned. 
you know, maybe a very clear instance has come into mind. I did sin. I, I did transgress. I did sin. I did commit iniquity. And I've been deceitful. I've been duplicitous. And we could be tempted to think, well, I'm the one who made the mess. I'll be the one to clean up the mess. Hoping that it doesn't get out. And if you're thinking that this morning, David will tell you, think again, friend. Because here's what happens when you begin to stay silent. He tells us, verse 3 and 4, he stayed silent. Silent ultimately towards God. Silent meaning silent towards confessing. He says, I kept silent about my sin and my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Oh, he was silent towards God. Uh, The Puritan John Trapp put it this way. He, describing David, said, I cried out for pain but prayed not for pardon. Oh, he was miserable. He cried out. We begin to hear the effects that it had on him. Again, David trying to teach us, don't stay silent about this sin. Don't just think that you can cover it up and hide it up and deal with it yourself. David says, this is what will happen to you because this is what happened to me. My body wasted away. That all day long I went about groaning. That day and night I sensed your hand, God, was heavy upon me. Heavy, weighing on me, such that my vitality, uh, my, my energy, my zest, my life juices, he says, they were all dried up, parched dry. That's what began to happen to me. Isn't it so interesting, we might add, how a spiritual act can even bring about physical effects? Isn't that interesting? I don't think David's merely talking symbolically here. Can you you read Psalm 32? You read Psalm 51? You could even add Psalm 38. For the better part of a year, remaining silent, the effects that this began to have even on his earthly body. And he says, my vitality, it was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Now that's an image I know you can relate to. You think back to July, can you think back to August? When you step outside in that heat and that humidity, grabs you by the neck. And some of you looking out and recognizing, oh, with my yard, I've got to get this yard work done. You think, well, I'll go out early in the morning, but if you go out too early in the morning, there's too much dew, so you try to mow the yard and you're going to get into a big mess. And we're not counting riding on a mower. No, we're talking about the real thing. The good old-fashioned, I know I need to get a workout, so I'll get my workout by mowing the yard. And how you do it, and how you slog through it, and you come to the end of that, and what happens? 
you continue to sweat, you sit down, and then it hits you. You are zapped of that energy, drained inside. And David says, that, that, that's what was going on for me. I was a shell of myself. My body wasting away. I was miserable, he says. But how interesting, even as he relays his experience and talks about how he kept silent about his sin, it seems like though he was silent about his sin, he wasn't silent about his situation. I mean, he's groaning. There are people attending to the king. Surely they're hearing these moans and groans, the grumbling, the complaining, the frustration. And surely, like any person, someone's going to step forward to David and ask, what's wrong? And again, for the better part of a year, David doesn't answer that question honestly. Perhaps he does open up about the struggle and his situation. He's opening up about the effects on his body, the pain that he's in, the heartache. Perhaps tears begin to roll, eliciting sympathy, maybe even placing himself in the position. Here is a victim. Yet all the while, towards God, silent about what really happened. And you take the psalm, you take Psalm 51. Again, if someone were to walk up, not only would they ask what's wrong, they might look at the evidence, look at the effects, and then give the diagnosis, David, you're depressed. In a sense, he was. But helpful for us to clarify, as one person observed, there are many streets that lead to the parking lot called depression. Hear me clearly on that. Many streets. We don't want to be the poor listener, poor counselor, like Job's friends, immediately concluding, oh, you got problems in your life? There's sin that you got to repent of. Boom, move forward. Now, often things can be complicated, many factors at play, and yet sometimes... Sometimes, David is saying, sometimes it is as simple as unconfessed sin. That there is at least one street called unconfessed sin that will take you to that parking lot called depression. And that's where David was. He's saying, this is what I did. I sinned, I transgressed, I committed iniquity, I was duplicitous, I stayed silent, while inwardly I'm dying. And you come to the end of verse 4, again, in the midst of this personal testimony, and he inserts this word, say law. Stop and think. David, by means of this personal testimony, is wanting to ask you and I, are you doing what he did? 
Are you responding the way that he responded? Are you seeking to cover up your sin? And we could think, oh, how many ways we can seek to cover up our own sin. We can seek to minimize what we've done. We can seek to hide what we've done. We can seek to rename and relabel what we've done. So it's not what God calls it, but we call it something else. We can deny that we've done wrong. We can be like the person in 1 John chapter 1. I have not sinned. Or even the person in 1 John 1 who says, I have no sin. We could spin it. Shift the blame, pointing the cause to someone else. Or we can simply try to forget it. Maybe with chemical assistance and David says stop and think pause and meditate this is what I did this is where it led me is that what you've done is that where you are Again, we think about our life we look at it maybe in the rear view mirror back to the past we knew What we did was wrong. We knew what we committed was sin in God's sight. And yet, we knew it, and yet we transgressed. We knew God's perspective on the matter. He's made clear his word and what he expects from you and I as creatures. And yet, we disregarded it. We disobeyed it. And again, thinking back, I sinned. I'm the one who made the mess. I'll be the one to clean it up. David says, is that you? Are you not miserable inside like I was miserable inside? Unresolved, growing guilt, is it not crushing you? I mean, living life all the while, walking about day to day on edge, lest someone find out what's been going on. Lest in some way, word gets out, I get caught, I'm discovered. And until that happens, walking on edge, walking on eggshells, anxious, even ready to quickly snap, all because of fear What if someone finds out? David says, that's a crushing weight. David says, I know this. This is what I did. He asks, is this what you've done? Is this what you are doing? That's one thread here to the personal testimony. But praise God, there is another thread. David will say, this is what I've done, but but hear also what God has done. Let me now tell you what God did in the midst of my sin, in the midst of my multifaceted, many-headed sin. God stepped in, and here it is what God did. And again, we know the account, a whole year in hypocrisy. Then by means of the prophet Nathan, we read that, The fingers pointed at David. You are the man, David. You are the one who has sinned. And David finally coming to his senses with no more secrets and silence, no more shame and sorrow, how he resolves, 
I will not be silent about my sin any longer. He says in verse 5, I, I, I acknowledged my sin to you. You sense the ownership. You sense that he is now finally taking responsibility. No blame shifting. No victim card. No, he owns what he's done. I acknowledged my sin to you. My iniquity I didn't hide. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Does that sound familiar, by the way? It's the same three words he used earlier. He calls it what it is. Transgression, sin, iniquity. He brings it to God. And then we ask, what did God do? And he tells us in verse 5, And even as he tells us, by means even of the grammar, it's as if David himself is getting choked up remembering what God did. He says, and you, 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 God, you forgave the guilt of my sin. No hesitation. No delay. No waiting period. No dismiss the jury to deliberate, to come up with the verdict. No, he confesses and God forgives. That's what God does. That's what God did. David is telling us God forgives immediately. Oh, and not only that, David tells us God forgives comprehensively. Go back to verse 1, go back to verse 2. You remember indirectly how David is describing himself. So now in verse 1 and verse 2, he tells us what God did. The transgression that I committed, David says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. That's what God did. He forgave my transgression. He he picked up, he lifted up, and removed what I've done. It makes us think of this as a burden on someone's back. Does it remind you of Pilgrim's Progress? Pilgrim himself having the burden on his back, representing his sin and his guilt, and how it weighed him down. And then, when he comes to the cross, what happens? He says, it was loosed from my shoulders and my burden fell off. That's what God does with this sin. He removes it. Not only that, he says, he covered my sin. Covers meaning he refuses to consider it anymore. He refuses to bring it up again against me. He's concealed it from his sight. The record, oh, there is a record, but it is no longer held against me. What about my iniquity? 
God does not impute this iniquity. God does not credit and treat us according to our iniquity. In fact, later in the Bible, Paul will draw this verse in Romans chapter 4 to explain, oh, God doesn't impute iniquity to us. God instead, when he forgives, he imputes something else to us. The very righteousness of his son to cover and clothe us that the debt is paid, the debt paid in full. As James Montgomery Boyce declared, David confessed it all and God forgave it all. So again, he says at the end of verse five, say law, pause and meditate. We do, we do well to simply ask the question, does anyone forgive like God forgives? I mean, how different God is from you and I. We can be slow to ask forgiveness and we can be slow to grant forgiveness. Stubborn, bothered, perhaps someone has to come to us, someone has to step in playing the role of mediator, trying to appeal to us, trying to uh, persuade us to forgive. Does God here need any persuading? No. The moment confession is made, the moment God forgives, immediately, comprehensively, Oh, but let's be clear, this doesn't then give us some license, some blank check. If God's going to forgive me in this way, I can go now and do whatever I want. Mark well, Psalm 130, verse 4, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Someone who is forgiven is someone who is grateful, someone who is thankful, someone who is filled with love. This isn't like what Matthew Henry said, someone who repents while keeping their eye to view when they'll sin again. No, this is God ready to forgive if we are ready to forsake. And God is more ready to forgive sin than we are often to forsake our sin. David here is drawing this all together just in his personal testimony, really boiling it down to do two very clear, very simple options. So simple that a boy or a girl, a young child can understand. David is saying this, okay, if you sin... You can cover your sin. Be assured, God will uncover it. Or, David says, you can uncover your sin to God. And be assured, God will then cover it. Far, far better for God to cover up our sin than for you and for I to try to deal with it ourselves like David did. This is David's testimony. What God did, what David did, his testimony about blessed forgiveness, that then moves us now to verses 6 through 11 quickly. We'll label it this, practical teaching. There's now some clear lessons David wants to give to us. He says, therefore, verse 6, drawing some inferences, that's my experience, that's my testimony. Here now, some practical teaching. 
Number one, we could call it this, quickly confess. He says, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. As if there's a season, there is a time when there's conviction, you need to act on it. You need to go to God and quickly confess. And he says, let everyone who is godly, he just simply means anyone who knows God and loves God. Is that you? Is that your desire this morning? David says, you're in this group. Simply go to him and quickly confess. And when you do that, he then begins to describe the blessing, the comfort, the safety, and the security. He says, yes, there will be floods of great waters, but they're not going to reach him. Why? Because you are my hiding place. You're the one who preserves me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. David's saying, yes, there will continue to be storms in life, but while there are storms without, by means of confession, there's peace within. I mean, aren't we drawn to this? Don't we not want this? Clear conscience, burden removed, Peace inside, David says, it can be yours, but you must quickly confess. We come to the second lesson in verses 8 and 9, and the verses are sort of a puzzle because the language shifts into the first person, and many have wondered, who exactly is speaking here? Is it David? Or is it God? Perhaps the answer would best be yes. We hear the human voice, but no doubt there is a divine voice behind it. God promising his ongoing care, counsel, and guidance. I'll instruct you. I'll teach you. I'll counsel you. But here's the second lesson. Not only ought you to quickly confess, number two, He takes us down to the farm. He points out some animals. And he says, oh, friend, humbly submit. See that horse? Or better yet, do you see that mule? Do you see how stubborn that mule is? He's saying, "Don't, don't be like that, friend. Don't dig in your heels. Don't remain silent. No, when convicted... Act on it. Humbly submit yourself to God. In fact, to remain silent is such a proud, arrogant act. He goes further, verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. The wicked here in context, someone who remains silent about their sin. He says there are many sorrows, many hardships. All could be avoided if one would but confess. Oh, the one though who trusts in the Lord, God's loyal, faithful, keeping love will surround him. That then prompts the third and final lesson. Quickly confess, humbly submit. Third, greatly rejoice. David says, if you have been forgiven, If you've confessed your sin and you found this forgiveness, how can you not then greatly 
rejoice. Be the happiest of all people. Be glad in the Lord, he says, and rejoice. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And we think of what Jesus himself will say in Luke chapter 7. The person who has been forgiven much loves much. Perhaps in Psalm 32's language, the one who has been forgiven much rejoices much. That's David's experience. His personal testimony, his practical teaching, trying to put before us what he says at the beginning, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Do you know what this forgiveness is? You could be sitting here today, much like David, your life opened up and exposed, especially in verses 3 and 4. You've been trying to cover up your sin. You've been the one trying to deal with it. And you know that path filled with many sorrows. The psalm then prompts and invites you to the first time to come to God and to quickly confess, to humbly submit, to look up and finally see what you've done in life. Oh, you're not just the victim on the receiving end, but you have been very much the active agent sinning against this God. And yet he says, come and confess. And what does he promise? Full forgiveness comprehensive forgiveness, immediate forgiveness. Not that he doesn't do something about the sin. Oh, he did. The burden of it, he placed upon his son. The debt of it, his son himself paid. How then could you not finally come to call out and to confess to this God? what you've done to then experience what he will do with his blessed forgiveness. Father in heaven, we thank you for the psalm this morning. We think and reflect on our lives, whether the past or now in the present, whether the sin is small, medium, or large, public, private, against family, friends, or against you. Oh, Lord, forgive us. We thank you that you are a forgiving God. We thank you for what you provide in your Son. We ask that you would even open up hearts of those who do not yet know this forgiveness from you that today they might taste and see how blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven, whose sin you cover. We ask this for our Savior's sake. Amen.